Thank you so much for your welcome. And now, I have a surprise for you, which may make you wish you hadn't been quite so enthusiastic. Uh, when you get into your 90s, as um, I have done, your memory for recent things may become more problematical in more ways than you had ever anticipated. And um, don't, don't nod your head. <laughs> I'm there already. Well, well, okay, I mean, if you don't mind that people draw the wrong conclusion. <laughs> right -o. Um, on I go. Um, <clears throat> I have got into my 90s. Uh, there's no way round that. And um, yesterday uh, I planned what I thought was um, a, a fruitful talk. And this morning, when I got up very early just to round it off, I found that everything I'd planned had come to pieces in my mind and didn't make sense as a single presentation at all. Not in the way that I thought it did yesterday. Can you imagine such a thing? Oh yes, and heads are nodding right, left and center. Okay. Well, here we are, here we are, the Fellowship of the Irrational, and um, what are we going to do today? That's the next question. Well, <clears throat> um, what I had thought I was going to do, and what I could still be... Um, allured back to, if I think, if the right lead-in questions come up, is um, <clears throat> the way in which um, the, how do I say this, the way in which the uh, <clears throat> here again, you see the 90-degree problem. I thought I knew what I wanted to say. And lo and behold, when I get up to saying it, I don't. From which the only thing that can be d logically deduced, I think, is that, um, well, how can I say it? Uh, <clears throat> you took a big risk in asking me to speak today and um, you will have to live with the consequences of it for the rest of your life. <laughs> what I'm going to do, what I was, go was going to do is to 
make some suggestions, um, no, inferences, draw some inferences um, <coughs> about the uh, special significance of each of the three, each of the four Gospels in relation to the other three. And as I said, we, we may get back to that. Um, I'm not sure, but putting it together the way that I planned, no. <coughs> All right. <coughs> but I will start by talking about the four Gospels. If you'll uh, stay with me with goodwill while I do that. And then the discussion can move whichever way it wants to move, and I don't know what that will be any more than you do. Uh, pause while um, I allow for protests to arise from the gallery. No, nobody in the gallery wants to protest. No. <laughs> uh, on then we'll go. And uh, here we will start. And I'm going to, <clears throat> to invite you to reflect with me on the four, four Gospels and to think of re a reason, a line of reasoning, which tells us why there might be four, as distinct from three or five or nine or whatever. You may wonder what I'm going to say next. Well, the only way to satisfy your curiosity is to say it, and this I will. Um, <coughs> It's generally agreed among scholars that of the four Gospels, the one which is most like notes of ongoing business is Mark. Mark is a down-to-earth writer who focuses very sharply on Jesus all the time or virtually all the time, and clearly knows what he's about, and is doing something which writers, secular writers, in the first century, and well indeed, um, in the early centuries, both BC and AD, um, quite often did, Mark drops a clue as to his identity. He, that is, he, he, he produces his piece of work for inspection and he includes in it a detail which will guide those in the know um, 
as to who he is, then he doesn't have to give his name as the author, which he doesn't. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the detail which has often been commented on without, I think, people seeing the full force of it. Um, the detail in the account of Jesus' arrest that tells us that there was um, a young man who, whom they tried to arrest, but he wriggled out of his cloak, and it says rather, uh, how can I say it, rather um, breathtakingly, that he fled away naked into the night. Well, <clears throat> this is, I think, and scholars generally think, this is John Mark dropping a hint in the text as to who he is. He doesn't give his name. No, well... It wasn't part of the convention that you should do that. But it does give a detail about him which can be picked up at a later stage by perceptive and knowledgeable people. Uh, <clears throat> and we should, should realise he isn't the only one who does that. All four evangelists leave, shall I call them uh, literary finger marks, on their text, which would enable knowledgeable people to recognize who had written these things. Well, wait a minute, you say. You're going ahead rather fast. Did everybody know who John Mark was to make the, um, to make the recognition? The answer is no, but uh, don't switch off too soon. Um, <clears throat> it was a convention that had been established before ever B.C. turned into A.D. And you can find examples of it in secular writing in Latin and Greek about this and that. And <coughs> the, the, the uh, knowledge that's needed um, to how can I say it, to turn the key and identify the author, that knowledge, though not part of our, uh, our culture, was thought of as um, a familiar element in the, uh, the ancient cultures, which wrote in Latin and Greek, as I said, what this, um, <clears throat> what, the, um, 
what this amounts to is a clue. You've all of you read detective stories, so you know what clues are. And if you ask how the clue works, well, the answer is there are in the um, ancient society for which the author, the anonymous author, wrote his material, there are among them um, people who in some significant way (coughs) and I shouldn't be saying people I should be saying a person who in some significant way some widespread way matches the hint that's been dropped in the text say what are you talking about Well, I'm talking about the fact that, um, first of all, John Mark doesn't identify himself in his gospel as the author. I'm talking, secondly, about the fact that John Mark's mother was, um, as we know from Acts, an inhabitant of Jerusalem who gave great support to Christian faith in the early days. And it was to her house, you'll remember, that um, Peter went on on one occasion when he'd been miraculously um, uh, released from prison. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Uh, (coughs) No. That, that very fact tells you this lady <coughs> and any other members of her household that were linked with her, uh, we may not be told anything like the, the, the whole roster of those, but um, she certainly in her house in Jerusalem was one of the... Uh, what shall I say, the, <coughs> the foundation stones of the, of the Christian community there. And um, one, one infers from the fact that um, <coughs> a maid appears in the Acts story that um, it was uh, a, fair, a well-to-do house where uh, the uh, the heir of the family, assuming John Mark to be this, it's the natural supposition, the heir of the family <coughs> would have all sorts of um, privileges uh, in his later teens and would move around Jerusalem and uh, get to know quite a lot about Jerusalem in the way that the uh, that the, 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 the sons um, of um, many contemporary families, which are fairly well-to-do, they have a lot of freedom in moving around and uh, getting to know people, places, and things. And then we know that 
Mark later, after a stumble, I mean a stumble vocationally, when he started off as a companion of Paul and gave up before the journey was finished. Um, he, as we can now say and see, wasn't up to it then. Yes, he was very interested in Jesus, but no, he hadn't the guts for what mission required of him. And so he pulled out. And he had to, well, to live that down. And when I say live, I mean live. Not just talk it down, but um, live in a way that convinced the people who were bearing the burden and heat of the mission uh, that, that um, he was stronger than he had been. And if, if they took him again, uh, he, would, um, he would be worth his weight in gold, shall I say. And that, the, the person who stood by him, again, we know, at least I expect we do, I expect we all remember, was Barnabas, who also, uh, in Paul's early days as a Christian, stood by him and worked with him and so forth. Well, what are we learning? We are learning that uh, Mark was a person sufficiently well known um, amongst, uh, what shall I call it? Well, well I'll, I'll say believers, although saying believers at this stage raises all sorts of questions. But Mark was a person well enough known among believers for the hint to be picked up. And uh, in these days, nearly two millennia afterwards, um, scholars pick up the same hint today and you find it in the commentaries. Probably you have already found it in commentaries or books of, of commentary type. Oh, right, that is Mark telling you who he is. Uh, the scholars who write commentaries on Mark tend to stop there. I mean, they don't even raise the question of uh, Matthew and um, John, who also were close to the Lord Jesus in his days on earth. But they, both of them, left the world. G uh, Gospels. Um, Gospels being, let, let's, let's say it now, then I shan't have to discuss it later. Gospels being presentations of Jesus which tell the reader what he needs to know to be a disciple. That's what it comes to. Um, not all books about people to whom you are a disciple um, will be books about them. Uh, uh, 
But uh, that that is what you seem to have. We seem to have here. All right. Uh, Matthew adds to Mark, but he hardly subtracts from Mark. There's only about three three dozen verses in Mark that aren't simply lifted virtually intact into Matthew's gospel which um, encourages you to think in terms of a process that went like this. Um, first of all, we, we have to uh, recognize that um, Mark's gospel really is lacking lacking in moral teaching. It isn't long enough. Question, why isn't it long enough? Answer, and this now is something which um, you won't find in all the commentaries because um, a lot of the people who write commentaries on New Testament, on the New, on New Testament books, don't seem to know anything about the first century book trade. Well, you may say, I don't know anything about it either. Tell me something. Okay, I will. Um, in the first and second centuries, um, a book trade was developing throughout the Roman Empire, at least in centres of... Uh, centers of education, learning. Um, the shape of the book trade was that uh, a person writes a book and he gives it to a person that we would nowadays call a publisher. Okay, in what form does it come to the publisher? Well, now, in those days, uh, a, 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 say, um, a paper industry was developing, and the paper industry took the form of, um, well, institutions that we would call factories, though they were quite small by comparison with modern factories. But yes, factories. Um, what went on in the factories? Well, all over the Roman Empire, it seems, what went on was the making of uh, loose sheets of papyrus, or whatever it was that they were whatever form of paper they were manufacturing, then so many loose sheets, a standard number, um, were sewn together. Yes, when I say sewn, I do mean S-E-W-N. There was uh, a form, some form of uh, togetherness, which could be used to sew. Now, nobody knows 
At least I don't think anybody knows um, how many dozen of the, uh, the, 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 the loose sheets of paper would be sewn together. But they would be sewn together. And then the person who eventually is going to uh, make his house a shop and display books for sale in his shop window, the person that nowadays we would call the bookseller, um, he would purchase the, uh, the, the call, let's call it a unit, um, they called it in Latin a codex, there were two lengths of codices, standard lengths, the long codex and the short codex, and the root, the codices, that's, uh, that, that's a Latin plural, by the way, codices, um, the, the, the root, the codices took into the um, shop window was via a back room, well, a large back room. Um, you would call, you could call it the factory, if you like, where there would be rows of slaves sitting with um, writing materials before them, copying the text into codex after codex. Thus, you see, um, a, a bookseller might, um, might have 50 or 60 copies of a book uh, all ready for sale within, shall we say, um, three months or something like that of handing, the, uh, handing a copy of the script to each, um, to each unit of slaves. I say units because um, there was a certain amount of cunning displayed by wise slaves in the factory back room. Uh, they, you, you may have seen pictures of this because the pictures get into children's books Though they don't get into adult books, at least not adult books that I have seen. Um, <laughs> clever slaves would make a framework apparatus uh, out of uh, branches or something equivalent. Uh, they would uh, they they would be nailed together to form a pattern. And then uh, pens, uh, or the equivalent, would be fixed into them. And the big deal would come when it was time to write and you would have a string of uh, um, I'll call it inkwells. I don't know the Latin words, I confess for ink and all the various forms of writing material. Uh, but that's where the, um, 
the pens would be dead. And then you could um, write the text of, uh, say, half a dozen copies of the book for sale um, and save a great deal of time and um, make a great deal of profit for the bookseller. Do you get the idea? Uh, well, we, we don't know how, uh, how big a deal this was becoming in various parts of the world. It's only ever referred to in the, the literature of the ancient world uh, incidentally, so you don't get a full description of the setup as I have tried to give you one now. But um, this is what they were actually doing. And um, book, um, books were happening. And um, with that knowledge under your belt, you look at the four Gospels and you are encouraged by the evidence to say these four books look as if they were written to be sold in the bookseller's front window and so they were being published not simply to meet all the requests from all the churches that were being formed at that time. Well, whatever time that was. Uh, dates is another question. I'll come back to that in a moment. But, um, yes, <coughs> that's, um, that's how it, uh, how it seems to have been and um, New Testament scholars are not interested in the book trade. They're only interested in the, the letters and the words. And um, sociolo sociological historians interested in the history of publishing, they're not particularly interested in the New Testament. So the New the um, New Testament documents that appear to have been produced this way don't catch the specialist interest of any of the, the people who study the ancient world, at least not in English. My knowledge doesn't enable me to say whether they pick this up in Germany, which is the other great centre of studying the uh, the cultural past, and we knew we were not going into that either. I'm just trying to I'm trying to give you this total setup, so that you realise what was happening, and are able to read the Gospels in light of your knowledge of what was happening, and uh, then it seems to me. You, you see something which otherwise you wouldn't have seen and which people who don't know anything about the book trade never do see. Namely, um, how this uh, material 
first got on the market to become standard. <clears throat> well, now I'm going to rev up. Um, Mark's Gospel appears to be um, either uh, a little, uh, how can I say, a little much for a short codex or um, uh, enough for a loose, uh, I mean a sort of uh, spaced out um, long codex and the bookseller with his uh, slaves in the back room could decide which he wanted and get them to write it. See? Uh, but um, when Mark, Mark, now I'm going to assume, you see, that, that, that this is correct and go on from here by guesswork. When Mark had uh, uh, got his gospel on the market with the hint at its authorship, although not his name, well, <clears throat> there was a man named Levi, um, Hebrew name, who uh, worked for the Romans and had um, uh, a, a name that was becoming uh, well, well known in Rome, in, in, sorry, Latin-speaking circles, the name of Matthew. Um, and this man named Matthew, he had been made one of the disciples, one of the twelve disciples, by the call of Jesus himself. And the effect of uh, the effect of that had been um, that he. He brought all, all the, um, the skills and interests of his previous trade as an accountant, um, that is a public, a public accountant, a tax collector, he brought all those skills to his reading of Mark and uh, his heart told him, hey, Mark has got uh, together all the, <coughs> all the key facts that people need to know about the ministry of Jesus and the, the calling of disciples, but uh, he hasn't, for whatever reason, put into his book hardly anything at all um, he has hardly put in anything at all about the code of Christianity, that is, the moral standards that Jesus had taught. And it came upon Matthew that he, a very precise, detailed man, um, who'd spent years and years being exact about figures, um, 
he could produce the code and fit it into Mark's outline and then Mark's handbook on discipleship will be twice as much value as it, as it was before. Do you get it? And, and that somehow happened. We don't know any of the details. We do know that Matthew's gospel emerged and that um, he chose to call it the gospel or at least to speak, speak of it in the text as the gospel of the kingdom. That's what Jesus was teaching, that's the message, the substance of which is contained in this text. So <clears throat> I think the natural guess is that when Matthew wrote his gospel, he thought it would supersede Mark, um, in a way that was uh, entirely praiseworthy, because the job he had done needed to be done by somebody. Otherwise, the meaning of Christian discipleship would never be as clear as it might be. And the, um, the comment, perhaps, at this stage is, wasn't anyone else then Writing a, writing a gospel or anything like a gospel at this time. When are we at this time? Well, we may be in, a, in the 50s, we may even be in the 40s. Jesus had been executed uh, probably in 30 AD. We, we know that. All right, so... Um, on we go, <clears throat> and very soon the church perceived that Mark and um, Mark and Matthew were both very skilled jobs of work. Uh, jobs of work, um, and one can go, one can write long footnotes about the skills involved in putting it all together the way that they did. And then uh, it would be in everybody's interest to have the two books side by side in the booksellers' shops. So uh, <coughs> that's what happened. And um, now I have to divert slightly and talk about dates. If you read any of the standard um, books on the New Testament material you will find that what they say about the Gospels is um, that uh, the four were written it seems by uh, somewhere in the 90s John wrote the last one as a very old man uh, Luke wrote the one before, um, back in the 70s or 80s. Well, wait a minute, I am blowing the whistle with great respect to the uh, New Testament histor historical, 
historical uh, researchers, I am one of the few who think that those dates are quite wrong. And I'll tell you why. First of all, they're thought to be right, because um, otherwise, it is argued, um, all the stuff that Jesus um, <coughs> presented at the end of his life in prophetic form about the coming sack um, wrecking of Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70, no question about that. All of that, <coughs> um, so one may argue, um, uh, all, all of that, uh, it's supposed, would not have been in the document if the document had been later than the sack of Jerusalem. I'm sorry, I said that backwards. Would not have been there if the document had been earlier than the sack of Jerusalem. That is precisely where I think the mistake gets made. But who have I got on my side who thinks that, um, well, let's say it in a single breath, all four Gospels were written before the sack of Jerusalem. Where did I get that from? Well, uh, the fact that um, it's, it's generally thought that John's Gospel reads like a kind of appendix to the first three, assuming all the things that they assumed and taking them further in terms of fellowship with the Lord Jesus, which transforms everything. That's really the subject matter of John's Gospel. I think you will agree without argument. Fellowship with Jesus transforms everything. And um, what is... Uh, uh, <coughs> um, No, I'm, I'm sorry. When you're in your 90s, sentences can fall apart in your mind. Mm -hmm. Then they think you're daft. <laughs> and um, and the, the wisest thing, perhaps, is, is to apologize for haste and leave the room quickly. <laughs> <coughs> No, what I'm saying seriously here is that um, the, the uh, no, it's uh, sorry, it's, it still won't come clearly. Muddle in the mind, a new experience in one's nineties. Bother. I'm sorry, I am serious, actually. <laughs> I've never, I've never, never had models in the mind um, b 
before, before I was 90. I'm getting them now, and I don't know when they'll come. And every now and then, I find myself in one, the moment I don't get know how to get out of it. <laughs> Let me take a deep breath, start a new sentence, and try and put some of this in order. Um, you, and I'll, I'll, yes, let me, let me start uh, where, um, how can I say it, uh, where you may be surprised to see me starting. Um, have you ever heard of Bishop John Robinson? Yes. Did you know that he wrote a book called um, Honest to God? And that that book was um, condemned by nearly everybody who did theology in English. Um, that is, around the world, quite literally. I mean. uh, did you know that this same John Robinson was a conservative New Testament scholar and that he published a book uh, on the composition of the New Testament, the whole New Testament, and that he argued, and this is the milk in the coconut that uh, I'd uh, lost touch with a moment ago, he had argued that all four Gospels, as well as all the other books of the New Testament, were written before A.D. 70, before the fall of Jerusalem and um, that he turned the argumentation of other professional scholars on its head by arguing if, the, if Jerusalem had already, had already fallen well the New Testament wouldn't be um, full of material which seems to point forward to its fall. Mm. And um, there's no answer, I think, to that. So on that matter, not on the other, I confess, but on that matter, I'm with John Robinson. And I invite you to be with him too, because it's the only position that makes sense. Mm. If it hasn't happened yet, well, you can understand people talking about uh, the, the uh, certainty of prophecy being fulfilled and um, uh, how grim it's going to be for some. Uh, I dare say that a lot of the discussion in the, in the towns and so forth would have been like our discussion here in Vancouver of the big one. Mm -hmm. We talk about it and then we talk about something else. We don't, do we, regard the threat of the big one as the, the certain, certain future reality in terms of which we should order our present lives.
You get that? We don't. The word is denial. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, um, this, this was uh, this was Robinson's argument. Uh, if it uh, uh, if these books had been written after the big one, it's not likely that it would have been presented as as a future event which we had to take which readers had to take account of it's it's much more likely that it would be presented as a future event to take account of if in fact it hadn't happened yet there, there are a number of places in the new testament which seem to point forward to the sack, the sack of jerusalem in AD 70 Robinson made his case, and people uh, smiled and nodded and went on denouncing honest to God, because that's what they were interested in at that time. So, uh, <clears throat> for better or for worse, uh, Packer and John Robinson stand together on the dates of the New Testament. Hmm. I think he was right in just about every every turn of the road in his argument. Okay, so where does that put us? Uh, that, that, with regard to Matthew and, and Mark, I mean. Well, it seems to me much more natural to say that Mark's Gospel, we think, would have been produced, at least in uh, its first form. We don't know if there were more than one. There was more than one form, but it, it would be produced in its first form within ten years of Jesus' death and ascent, uh, and resurrection and ascension. Um, that's it. Seems to me the natural guess. People don't just think of ten years. Uh, ten, a 10-year gap. How far back does that take us? Um, it, see, it seems to me that um, there... Well, it's inconceivable that there wouldn't have been a sense of urgency about Jesus and everything he did and taught. Um... Uh, and that, uh, that sense of urgency would uh, develop very soon after his ascension. So, I won't argue that de uh, further. I, I, can't, I can't prove it as certain. I can only say, don't you think it really does sound probable? Uh, I think it's probable, and I shall treat it as, I treat it as a certainty for arguing about other things, exploring other things. Okay, so let's suppose that Mark's Gospel was written about 40. Let's suppose that uh, Matthew, seeing what was needed, was able to produce his Gospel about, uh, well, towards the end of the next decade. Let's say that. We're being generous, I think. 
uh, if I had had to guess without help from any outside source, I think I would have guessed by 40, that it would exist by 45. And um, very soon it was obvious that the church needed both Gospels and uh, that, the, that Matthew wasn't going to kill Matthew, Mark, just, uh, just the opposite. Uh, people would read Mark and uh, people who'd already read Matthew would say, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot more about Jesus that you ought to know and it's in here. And they would, um, they would then be reading Matthew alongside, alongside Mark. And what do you say about the, uh, about the other two Gospels? Well, first thing that, that you could say is that um, John's Gospel <coughs> doesn't have to follow Luke's. Um, John's Gospel, after all, comes from the same circle as Matthew and Mark. But it's developing an aspect of Jesus' teaching that is the difference that Jesus makes to human lives. Um, the difference that he makes through union with God, the God the Father and with himself and the Holy Spirit, although to make his point about the Father and the Son as strongly as possible, uh, John isn't tremendously strong on what he says about the Holy Spirit. But um, that, I think, is what's happening in John. And it seems to me that uh, John's Gospel could have been written in the 50s, early 50s, uh, much more naturally than if you suppose it was written in the 90s, as the majority of critics do. And then what about Luke? Oh, well, wait a minute. I, one thing I haven't told you. Um, both Matthew and John um, use the uh, signature story trick that um, you find in, in uh, Mark. John, um, sorry, Matthew's signature story comes straight after we hear his name for the first time. Well, wait a minute, we don't hear his name for the first time because he's still called. This is uh, Matthew writing about himself, and he's still called Levi because he's still on the payroll of uh, the, 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 the Romans who employed Jews as public tax collectors and made a big deal of, of doing so because it was from Jews that the taxes had to be collected. And if it was Jews who were doing the collecting, well, all the odium would go to these Jews rather than to the Roman government for what they were doing in uh, claiming too much money and so forth. All right. Well, there, there it is in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 10. 
And then um, John, three times, refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is rather bold, but um, there's a testimonial at the back of the gospel, the last chapter, which says, uh, and obviously it isn't John who's writing this, but John is the disciple who wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Well, you and I know what testimonials are for. They are to guarantee the truth, trustworthiness, and reliability of whatever it is that is being attested to. Um, in this case, it's the Apostle John. Well, time's run out, and I can't tell you any more. I thought we were going to have a discussion, but uh, no, you could see we aren't. Because I'm, af I'm afraid I've eaten up all the time myself. But um, anyway, that's where I where I put John. I think he wrote his gospel in the fifties. And then what about Luke? Well, scholars read the opening words of Luke and they don't realize that this is um, Luke's uh, discreet performance of the signature trick. What he says is, uh, you may remember, um, whereas many have taken in hand to uh, write accounts of Jesus, I, having known about everything from the start, uh, now write this and detect it to, uh, and dedicate it to you Philotheo, Philothi, sorry, it should be, um, O Theophilus, O lover of God. It's, <laughs> the form is that of a proper name, but what he is actually doing is, develop, is uh, dedicating his book to all who want to know God and love God and get the benefit of the wisdom that Jesus brought and the saving work that he did. And uh, hmm, I need, I need, yes, I need another best part of an hour, I'm afraid, to explain how, in my judgment, uh, Luke did it, because I think it's, I think the evidence is fairly clear. But we can't do that now. All right. I'm saying for the moment only that uh, Luke's Gospel, I think, was the last to be written, and that it was written in a way which uh, was intended to um, find it a place in the volumes of history writing that existed at that time. There were a number of historians whose works had already been published in the manner that I referred to at the start. Uh, Luke wants his work to join their number. And um, not just part one, but part two. Uh, when, he, when he gets back to Philothea, the lover of God, and dedicates to him a second volume.
that which we call acts. Yeah. Uh, and when was that written? Um, I think the uh, stimulus for it came from the fact that Luke, who was already the sort of writer who makes a good historian and knew he was, Luke found himself with time on his hands because Paul was being kept in prison. This is in Acts, um, and you'll, you'll be able to, to look it up. Paul was in prison uh, at the will of Hest Festus, the Roman governor. That's, that's the right way round, isn't it? And when... Um, or have I got it muddled? I was going to say when Festus uh, finished his time and the new governor came, the new governor had um, a Jew from Rome come down to um, Caesarea um, almost at once to say what the problem, what problem the Jewish leadership had with this man Paul who was in prison for uh, his ministry uh, his ministry of the truth concerning Jesus. And um, those two years, which when they started, looked as if they might go on forever because nobody knew, nobody could tell at that stage how long it would be before um, Festus's... Uh, uh, Festus's uh, uh, governorship lasted. Um, it's, uh, Luke says, by the way, explicitly, you may remember, that um, he left, uh, Festus left Paul in prison without any prospect of a case in court which might result in his release. He kept Paul in prison as a favor to the Jews. See, that detail becomes, becomes rather significant now because here is Luke then with um, what seems likely to be a lot of time on his hands and he's anchored in, uh, in Palestine and he realizes, I could do detail research into the birth of Jesus and all the details there. And so off he went and did it, and then uh, wrote it up as the first two chapters of his gospel. Well, <clears throat> I would argue that as uh, uh, an appropriate guess. You can't say it's certain, but equally, you can't say it's nonsense. Uh, you can see that, I hope. Well, all right. And he researched the early days of Jesus. He researched um, the ministry of Jesus, found a lot of stuff which hadn't got into Matthew or Mark or John. And um, when he... Well, as he remembered all through, 
that um, what was going to please the Jews about Paul's continued imprisonment was that he wouldn't be able to take the gospel to Rome. Um, Luke, in faith, said in his heart, I think he will. I think his release will come. And lo and behold, so it did. Uh, remember uh, the exchange with uh, Agrippa um, led to Agrippa saying to, um, oh, what's, what's the name of the Roman governor? Just for the moment it won't come. Um, anyway, uh, Agrippa says to him, this chap could have been released if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Well, Luke has already written why it was that, Mark, that uh, Paul appealed to Caesar. Um, there was uh, a plot going which would have resulted in his assassination. And um, so, so uh, to, to, to cut the long story short, uh, Luke, go, uh, Luke goes on with the tale. Um, the tale of Paul now, he's found out enough about, the, about Jesus to fill a long codex of Jesus' history which would have in it uh, approaching half the material distinctive to Luke in some way. And so, um, and so it works out. Uh, Luke got into this because Luke saw himself. Well, well no, I won't put it that way. Luke knew that he was the sort of man who wrote good history. He asked the right questions and he wrote in the manner of a historian. And if I had time, which I don't, um, no, I don't, Alexander, I don't be <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I would have pursued that. No, I think the order is Matthew, sorry, Mark, Matthew, John, Luke. And having got that far in this amount of time, uh, I will be courteous to you, friends, at last, and pipe down. <laughs>